Good evening, everyone, uh, and welcome to the London School of Economics. My name is Professor Paul Kelly, and I'm a pro-director for the school, so I'm sitting here on behalf of the director, Craig Calhoun, who, um, as I was leaving my office and he had to do something else, informed me that he would rather be doing this than the other thing that he's down to do this evening. So, welcome to this evening's event. Um, it's a great honour for me to welcome Dr. Anthony Downey to the LSE today. Um, I'm sure you're all aware that Anthony is both an academic and a writer. He's editor of Uncommon Grounds, New Media and Critical Practice in North Africa and the Middle East and co-editor of The Future of a Promise, Contemporary Art from the Arab World. He's currently editing Archival Dissonance, Knowledge Production and Art Practices in the Middle East and Mirrors for Princes. Anthony is also the director of the Contemporary Art Master's Programme at the Sotheby's Institute of Art and editor-in-chief of IBRAS, a research forum on visual culture across the Middle East and North Africa. We're very lucky here at the LSE to have Anthony to discuss his new book, Art and Politics Now. Since the turn of the 21st century, contemporary artists have increasingly engaged with some of the most pressing issues facing our world, from globalisation, migration, citizenship, to conflict, terrorism and social activism, some of the issues that we constantly look at through the courses that we teach at LSE. Today, Anthony will discuss the implications of this development for both art and politics, bringing a valuable perspective to the school that we perhaps pay insufficient attention to. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's, e today's event is hash LSEart. Um, I'd ask you, um, particularly those of you who, who, who may be tweeting, to put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the event. Um, it is being recorded and this will be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties in the recording. Um, we will have, at the end of the lecture, the opportunity for questions and answers. And because it's being recorded, if, if when I ask you to present your questions to Anthony, if you would wait till we bring the microphone around, it's not because it's always difficult to hear you, but it's important for the recording. So if you bear with me, um, we will bring as many of you into the conversation as possible. And as usual, after the lecture, there will be a chance... Um, for those of you uh, who wish to have the book signed, to do so. The book will be available outside and Anthony will stay here. Um, so if you wish to come back in, please do so. So without further practical um, advice, can I hand over to tonight's speaker <coughs> and ask you to join with me in welcoming Anthony Downey to the LSE. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, can everybody hear me at the back? Yeah? Loud and clear? Yes? Yep. Folks, thank you uh, for coming along tonight. I understand we have serious competition. There are three other lectures in the building. I know people outside queuing for lectures, which is always heartening. I'd like to thank Paul for agreeing tonight to chair. It's very kind of him. I would also like to thank Orla Houston Jibo from Thames and Hudson for organizing this evening and making sure that some books are here. So... What are we going to do? What I'd like to do tonight is spend about five or ten minutes just giving some context to the book itself. You know, how it came into being, what's its function, what's it there for, what's its intended audience, and so forth. 
And I'd like to just talk about, firstly, the first thing that came to mind when we wrote this book, and it was definitely a collective effort. My editor, Jackie Klein, uh, would ring me every morning for about three months after I delivered a chapter saying, make it more accessible. I could have quite literally had this tattooed on my forehead so that every morning when I woke up and looked in the mirror while shaving, I would see, make it more accessible. At one point, she didn't even you know, do it you know, saying hello. She just said, make it more accessible. That's all I heard for three months. And that was actually quite problematic. And I don't know about you guys. I know you're undergraduates and postgraduates. Some of you are already working in this area. It's actually quite a difficult thing to do, as I found out. I was quite surprised how difficult it is to make something accessible. And I just want to put that in context. My natural habitat is a kind of 10 to 15,000 word academic essay. I have 100 footnotes and cross-references. It will be published in a relatively obscure academic journal. It will be read by 10 people. Five of them will be related to you. And the other five will be reading it just to tell you how wrong you were. So it's a rather disheartening experience writing something that's so esoteric. And yet I've been doing it for the best part of 25 years. And coming to this book was actually much more difficult in many ways because you have to rethink from the ground up what you mean by certain terms. Art and politics, even those two terms in and of themselves, quite problematic, very difficult to ascertain, very difficult to define, but absolutely necessary if we want to engage with contemporary visual culture and its relationship to the political sphere today. So accessibility was key for me personally, and I hope this book is accessible. And I hope this lecture is accessible, because I think it's important that more people get involved with these debates. And I think if this is about anything tonight, it is about notions of engagement. And that's something that I want to come back to again and again in relation to what I'm talking about tonight. The key thing that happened then when I was thinking about accessibility was quite simple. It occurred to me that if I could define the relationship between art and politics, I would not just be defining the relationship between art and politics but potentially redefining what we mean by art and the sphere of the political itself. So this became key to my thinking behind this book. I set myself a number of questions. And again, I'm going to just lay out the various questions that I intend to address tonight, and then we're going to look at some images for about 45, 50 minutes. But the key questions were as follows. Why were contemporary artists increasingly, increasingly engaging with the field of the political? This is new. This is relatively new. The overt engagement with the field of the political. Why, secondly, was the contemporary art sphere considered, increasingly considered to be a viable area, a viable platform for discussing political issues? Again, this is relatively new. So these were two key issues that I needed to address and I needed to engage with in order to progress the thesis behind this book. The third issue was relatively straightforward. It's a simple question, but far from simplistic. Can contemporary visual culture offer an expanded field of engagement with the political? Now again, I could spend the entire rest of semester or another couple of years talking about that simple question, because I think that's right at the core. What does contemporary visual culture, which has invested itself in political arguments, and artists increasingly becoming social activists, what has it got to offer to the field and indeed sphere of the political itself? So these are the three questions. And again, these are outlined in the introduction and hopefully carried through throughout the book. But I want to be clear and I want to make a few points of, well, dare I say, a caveat emptor. 
by our beware. Firstly, art has always been political, period. There is no time during the history of art where it has not been political. If you understand art as a social practice engaged in a relative social field within the nexus of political, historical, cultural, and economic networks, it can only ever be political. Simple as that. So this was the point and the starting point that I came from, but I also wanted to sort of put something forward, something that was different. And that was about a particular politics of practice and modes of engagement, a specific politics of practice. What does it mean to practice contemporary art today in relation to the political? Against a backdrop of an overt and quite timely history of art in relation to politics. How do I define politics? And again, these are all the questions that I sat down and had to ask myself. Uh, how do I define it? Very simply, I define politics, and I, I'm conscious that I'm sitting, standing today, talking to people that are engaged with these issues, so I don't think this will come in as any surprise. I define politics as the ability to determine what is, and indeed what is not, political. Simple as that. So politics is the determination of what is political, what is accepted as political. Now this opens up another field of engagement because what we get into here is how politics as a sphere can legitimize and delegitimize voices. And again, one thing that really interested me about contemporary art practice was how it engaged with these process, processes of legitimation and delegitimation. If you're looking for a theoretical background to this or a way of kind of contextualizing it in theory, there are a number of authors that were of particular use to me, although I was very careful not to overquote them in the book itself. I would think Jacques Rancier, Georgia Agamben, Alain Badieu, and Chantal Mouffe provided the kind of best way for me to think through some of these issues. What else interests me about the field of the political? The field of the political increasingly seems to me to be about abnegating or disavowing disagreement. It seems to be about consensual politics. This form of consensual politics seems to affect every political party that I can talk about. This is not about left or right. This is not about for or against. I don't think that is the field of the political. I think the field of the political increasingly is about abnegating or disavowing disagreement and working towards consensus. And again, what interested me about these artists working here was opening up the field of consensus, re-engaging with it. I should also say this is not about political art, and I need to be quite clear about that. This is not about artists who make political standpoints. It's not about artists arguing for or against conservatism, labor, liberalism, democratic party. Quite the opposite, actually. And again, I just need to be clear, I'm not interested in the for and against argument in this. I'm not interested in those forms of politics. I think they get you involved, again, in a kind of move towards consensus, and we have to be very careful about that. As a form of social practice, contemporary art needs to be understood not so much in terms of political art, that's agitprop or propaganda, but in relation to how it has become part of the social and political imagination through various forms of representation and engagement. And I think this was key for me, as someone who spent 25 years working with contemporary art. Contemporary art has now became part of not only the cultural imagination, an accepted realm of cultural engagement, it has become part of a political imagination. And again, I wanted to explore this in depth. 
I also need to be super clear. The majority of contemporary art produced today is not only trivial, but trivializing. I see it merely as the production of trinkets for an international wealth accumulation. 95% of it, right down the line. And of course, one could name names. However, one will be framed. And I'm sure you can imagine who they are. But if I see one more kind of... No, let's name names. If I see one more Anthony Gormley sculpture, and bear in mind, I used to live next door to a studio in Peckham, and they would be lined up on the pavement every morning, all these little Gorms, just waiting for export worldwide, I would probably have an aneurysm. And I think Anthony is one of the least objectionable of contemporary artists doing this today. But contemporary art today is not only about the production of trinkets for an international wealth accumulation, it is also on the vanguard of globalization. It is integral to the system of neoliberal capital accumulation. So again, I want to be super clear about that, and I don't want to leave it a sense that somehow I'm advocating contemporary art here. I'm not. What I'm advocating are contemporary artists that work with process-based practices, where the idea, even of an object for sale at the end of it, is not only anathema, but it's simply not there. So, where does that leave us? Leaves us in two places. And hopefully if this lecture is a success, and if the book indeed is a success, it leaves us re-examining not only the role of contemporary art, but it leaves us re-examining the sphere of the political itself and what precisely we mean by the political today. And again, this is a hugely problematic area that would probably demand a series of lectures, but again, I do want to touch on it. Before I begin looking at images, I want to make two clear points. And I understand that there are a number of you here from a visual art background, but the majority of you will not be from a visual art background. And I need you to bear in mind something, especially when I'm looking at what are relatively radical practices. And they are as following. The role of the artist has changed beyond any imagination, beyond my imagination in the last 25 years, i.e. the time frame that I've been working with contemporary art. Artists today have a very different role. They're curators, writers, researchers, educators, documentarists, ethnographers, and quasi-social workers. And I need you to bear that in mind. Artists increasingly have changed the very parameters within which we understand the role of the artist itself today. Again, I see artists increasingly moving into the field of social activism, which is problematic too, and again, something we'll come back to. I also need you to bear the following in mind. The formal elements of contemporary art practice have changed immeasurably in the last two decades. And I'll just give you a brief example, and we're going to look at quite a few more shortly. Artists and artworks today, or art practices, can be lecture performances. They can be documentary or archive-based. They can be artist-led workshops, social activism and collaborations with communities. They can be community-based projects. They can be research-led seminars, artist-initiated political movements, artist-initiated universities. They can be artist-funded organizations, political or otherwise. They can also involve, and largely do, and something I will look at increasingly throughout this lecture, the co-option of individuals and communities into the very practice and process of making art itself. And that is something that's created some radical issues in and around contemporary art practice. So... Let's begin with some dates. For me, and I don't know about you guys, but for me, 
the question, why do artists increasingly engage with political issues, can come down to a number of singular historical events. And I think one of the key events is obviously September 11, 2001. I think that this has now, and I don't want to overstate it, but this has now created a legacy of political issues and political engagement that we see throughout a number of emerging and indeed established artists. The other data I would have you look at is the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, the invasion of Iraq in 2003, even more importantly, the so-called war on terror and the ramifications of that in relation to legality and due legal process. You could add to that the opportunistic suspension of legal rights and habeas corpus as a result of the so-called war on terror. You would also, if you're looking at dates or if you're looking at events that define these artists and their engagement with the political, you would look at the emergence of the figure of the refugee and the camp as the exemplification rather than the exception to modernity. And this is something I will come back to. You would also want to look at the financial crash of 2007. Again, we're living through the ramifications of that. You'd want to look at the radicalization of civil protest and the delegitimization of civil process and civil protest. I think this is very important. I would also look at recent conflicts in Africa, uh, North Africa, and the Middle East, and ubiquitous forms of surveillance and the manufacturing of knowledge itself. So again, these are all events which are arguably a direct predication upon which artists politicize or engage with the political. <coughs> so, having said as much, could we dim the lights at the front? Am I talking to some deus ex machina, or is there anybody there? Thank you. Can everybody see the screen? Yes? It's a wee bit small, and um, actually, yeah, it's more about the, uh, these are points of reference. The book itself is split into a number of chapters. Uh, I'm not going to look at all of these tonight. There's far too many. I think there were 11 in total. The ones I will look at are conflict, terror, camps, citizens, and knowledge. I'll just quickly add that I could have chosen any way of looking at this, to be honest with you. There's a number of different paths you can take through the book. But these seem, when I was preparing this at least, to make the most sense. I think a key quote for me, and something that got me thinking specifically about what this book was about, was this. And sorry to read this, but uh, here it goes. Doing art means displacing art's borders. Just as doing politics means displacing the borders of what is acknowledged as the political. And I think this is absolutely crucial. The reconfiguration, reevaluation of art as a practice, but equally the displacement of what we consider to be the borders of the political. I want to be clear. When I said that I am not going to talk about political art, this would be an example of political art. Uh, this is an overt stand on a political event. It's an overt criticism of President George W. Bush. I'm not interested in this. Um, why am I not interested in it? Firstly, Richard Serra. Is this a name that's familiar to you guys? Could I have a show of hands? Don't be shy. Okay, quite a few of you. Very well-respected paragon, indeed, of American art. I saw this in 2004 at Whitney Biennial, and you know what? I kind of looked at it and thought, 
great, Stumpbush, super, let's do it. You know, um, it seems so trivial. You know, stop Bush. Great. I mean, we're, we're going to stop Bush because Richard Serra asks us to stop Bush. Or indeed, you know, Richard Serra thinks it worthy to put this image in the Whitney Biennial. Now, this is an emotive moment, obviously, and it's a motive image. Stop Bush. If only. I mean, of course, a work like this, I think, tends again. This is not about art and politics. This is about political art. This is agitprop and propaganda. I feel the problem with works like this is that they merely re-engage with the parameters of the discussion that politics would want you to engage with. So I'm just not interested in it. Equally, I was quite sort of taken aback. I just done a little Google search. When you put in art and politics, you still get this almost 1930s, 1940s agitprop, imagistic, propagandistic form of imagery. None of this interests me. Again, I think it merely reifies and reinforces the terms of the debate. And it's precisely the terms of the debate today that we need to displace. When I put in political art, I cannot begin to tell you how depressed I am to see that Banksy comes up when you put in political art. And I hope I'm not offending anybody here, but the very fact that Banksy comes up when you put in political art, I think is a statement about the paucity and an adequacy of the term itself today and the need for us to re-engage it. Banksy's not about political art. It, I mean, I don't think the guy has a political bone in his body. What he does is tends to sort of create a nice graphic, which he then stencils on a wall. He tends to be, and I've never met the guy, but in my experience of his work, there's a cynicism there that I think we need to avoid. And all of this kind of notion that he's somehow you know, political, I think is very problematic. But let's start thinking about some of those key dates, and let's start thinking about what comes out of that moment. And I think the Iraq War, for everyone in this room, has probably defined, as much as September 11th, the political climate within which we live. And I just want to think about some of the works that interested me, and some of the works that got me thinking about what potentially a revivified or rearticulated relationship between art and politics could possibly be. Can I ask... Mark Wallinger, State Britain. Has anybody seen this work? Did any of you in this room see this work? Hands up, please. Very few. Okay, it wasn't on very terribly long. It was in the Duveen Galleries, State Britain. Let me describe to you precisely what's happening here. Uh, Mark Wallinger basically reconstructed from photographs a protest that had taken place for five, seven years by the time he took the photographs by this man, Brian Hall. Did anybody ever see Brian when he was alive doing this? It was quite an event, actually. He would literally sit outside of the Houses of Parliament all day, all night, with these protests. And some of them were very graphic. Some of them were difficult to look at. But the British government, in its wisdom, decided that Brian had to go. Now, I think this is interesting. Just the sheer kind of visual element of that in and of itself, getting rid of this guy creates more problems than actually leaving him there. Leaving him there was actually the easier option, but they got rid of him. Prior to them getting rid of him, however, Mark Wallinger went and recorded the entire protest itself, every single item, every single document. He reconstructed it at Tate Britain in 2007. Now, I think a lot comes into play here, and I think in many ways this, for me, was one of the more important gestures that rearticulated the notion of art and its relationship to politics. One, this is still about the aesthetic. This is still about verisimilitude. This is still about reenactment. This is still about recreation. But it brings into play something else. What is it to place protest at the heart of an institution? And what does that institution do to that form of protest? Does it neutralize it? 
as is quite often the case, as soon as you institutionalize something, it neutralizes it. But Wallinger's, dare I say, much cleverer than that. Because when the government decided to get rid of Brian Hall, they put a one-kilometer exclusion zone around the Houses of Parliament so that no one could protest in the manner that he had previously done. So what does Mark Wallinger do? Some of you may know that Take Britain is exactly one kilometer away from the Houses of Parliament. And he reconstructed the whole thing. And you can see there's a line here. That's the one kilometer line. Half of it was within the government exclusion order. The other half was slightly outside. Now, again, I could spend the rest of the lecture talking about this. I'm not. But again, I think that this was about re-engaging with the legitimacy and delegitimization of voices of protest in late or early 21st century Britain. Jeremy Deller. You know, Jeremy, <clears throat> Jeremy's a crowd pleaser, and this is perhaps the least crowd pleasing of his works. What it is. Um, I saw this work prior to its construction, and I saw it tour. It was in the States for a while. Jeremy might be more familiar to you from this work, The Battle of Orgreave, where he reconstructed the miners' strike and the protests around the miners' strike in 1984. For this work, what it is, he managed to commandeer a car that had been bombed in a marketplace in Baghdad in 2007. He took this car on a tour of America. On that tour, two people were participants. One was a reservist U.S. soldier who had fought in Baghdad, Iraq. The other was an Iraqi artist forward slash social activist who had went looking for asylum in America. They went around the states of America with this burnt out bombed car and they invited, very simply, they invited people to come and talk about their reaction to it. Now, on one level, this is deeply apolitical. Jeremy had nothing to say about the work. He did not have any control over what was said in relation to it. He merely staged an event whereby you, the public, could come and talk about your reaction to this car. Now again, for me personally, and the book itself, it's very much about this art and the political, about re-engaging a site of discussion and a site of discourse around something which has become increasingly, not delegitimized, but people seem not ready or unable to articulate a point of view anymore. I remember arriving, two events which pretty much defined my reaction to a lot of things that was happening. Five days after September 11, I flew to New York. Uh, I think it was on the 16th, on a practically empty jumbo jet. I think there were six people all looking pretty freaked out. Um, despite the fact there were only six people, there was a lot of drinks trolleys, and this helped. I arrived in America. For those of you who arrive at JFK, you take the car downtown, you arrive downtown. That stretch is quite interesting. I've never seen so many American flags in my life. I have never seen such vitriol on the television. I have never seen, not even Fox News, you can almost allow for that, but ABC, NBC, MSBC, all of these television stations literally baying for blood. Now, that's perhaps understandable, an emotive act again. But I arrived two years later, literally on the day that the Iraq war broke out, March 20th, 2003, in New York. And the thing that struck me again and again and again, and I want to be clear about this, the difference between politics in America and Europe. But in America, there was no discussion Zero. There was no dissent. There was no voices to be heard actually even protesting against a war in Iraq. This is very different to what happened in England. But for me 
basically seeing this work going across America, re-engaging people was quite interesting because suddenly you opened up a whole kind of occluded, repressed discourse about the rights and the wrongs of the war in Iraq. And we're not talking history here, folks. We're still talking a live event. It looks very, very likely there will be another ground war in Iraq within the next month. I'm going to talk a little bit more about Iraq because... Effectively, I think if there's a defining moment for our generation, it is the war in Iraq. And that was a direct consequence, of course, of September 11th. And this was Steve McQueen. Steve might be better known to you as the <coughs> filmmaker uh, responsible for Shame, Hunger, and 12 Years a Slave. Uh, in 2007, you know, Steve was pretty well known, not the superstar he is now. He put together an extraordinary work, which I, I still need to find time to engage with. But he had been the official war artist in Iraq. Upon his return in 2003, he asked the Ministry of Defense for the photographs of all of the soldiers, British soldiers, who had died in Iraq. He was going to make stamps out of their faces. The Ministry of Defense, quite miffed by this, suggested, you know what, we're not giving you the photos. Rather than do that, could you paint the landscape? <laughs> Fascinating idea. Somehow, it's almost as if... Do you know what, if Steve had came back and painted the landscape, that would have been as political, because people would have asked, what the hell are you doing? painting landscapes. You've just been to Baghdad. <laughs> but the MOD, you know, they're not known for you know, their art criticism. Steve puts this together, the whole idea of this work, and again, very simple gesture. If you think about a stamp, perfect size, perfect weight, anybody can buy it. He wants the post office to publish these as official stamps. You will then use them on letters. You will then send those letters worldwide or you know, to your parents, whatever you do. But suddenly... These stamps, these faces, are implicated within a broader social context. Now again, is Steve saying the war in Iraq is good or bad? Not as simple as that. As soon as you get involved in that conversation, I think you're lost. Because effectively, that's precisely where a political agenda would want you to be. For or against. It's easy. I'm either for or against. But what if you want to discuss something even much more subtle? What if you want to get into the nuance? What if you want to get into what actually matters about that war? I think you need a different approach. I think for me personally, Steve's work here has certainly examined that. Michael Rakovitz. Um, <clears throat> for those of you not familiar with contemporary art, I would strongly suggest checking out Michael's work. I personally think the guy's a genius. This work in particular I find uh, very provocative. Michael is a Iraqi Jewish American. <laughs> I mean, and, and a very normal guy for all of that. Uh, very social, very, you know, engaging. But he's Iraqi, Jewish, American. And this is important. I interviewed Michael a few times. I've interviewed most of the artists, uh, although most of, a lot of the interviews didn't turn up in the book. I interviewed a lot of these artists in advance of the book. I was very interested with Michael was, what Michael was doing with this work. Effectively, Michael, using his Iraqi Jewish mother's recipes invited children of American reservist soldiers who had fought in Iraq and local Iraqi communities to come together and cook food. Super simple. And again, one of the things I like about this work is its notion of social engagement. There's nothing more simple than cooking food. Well, for most of us. But in bringing these kids together, what is he asking them to do? Cook food. Super. Is he asking them to discuss the war in Iraq? No. If he had asked them to discuss the war in Iraq, I certainly wouldn't be talking about this work, because I think that would have defeated the purpose. You cannot ask people to take sides. 
you need people to come together and discuss the issues. And it's precisely the absence of any dissent, any voices of opposition to the war in Iraq and America that Michael's work was certainly tackling. Wafa Bilal, um, anybody here familiar with Wafa's work? No? Okay, this guy's a personal obsession of mine. Um, Wafa Bilal is Iraqi, born in Iraq. Uh, he left Iraq in 2005. His brother was shot by American forces, shot dead. Uh, his father subsequently grieved to death over the death of his brother. Wafa himself sought exile, sought asylum, firstly in Saudi Arabia, then Kuwait, then he now lives in New York. And you know, that would make me a very bitter, twisted chap in many ways. However, he has decided that the comfort zone he now lives in, the life he lives in America, enables him to engage with zones of conflict and the past itself. And I think that's a very brave gesture in many ways. What did he do in this work? Effectively, he had himself tattooed. 150,000 tiny dots on his back. 150,000 tiny dots on his back to represent the then number of people thought to have died in Iraq. He then tattooed the names of the cities where most of these people had died. Now, you could only see this under ultraviolet light, the reflection of light, I mean, quite literally. Otherwise, if you see Wafa's back, which I've done, it's invisible. Uh, he's got some scarring, it's a lot of tattoos, uh, but you can't actually see it. You can only see the tattoo of the cities itself. Now, again, this is about issues of visibility and invisibility. And I think, again, if we're looking at the relationship between contemporary art practices and politics itself, we need to engage with the question of visibility and invisibility. Uh, yes, I've, I've written about him recently for anyone who's interested. This is an interesting work, Domestic Tension. He set this up in a sort of gallery space, 2007. And just to describe, it was a space about a quarter the size of this. He sat in a room. At the front of this room, there was a paintball machine. That paintball machine was connected to the internet. You could go online and fire a paintball at Wafa Bilal. <laughs> uh, which sounds amusing. Until you have to spend time in that room. Now, again, what he's exploring here, domestic tension, the sense of unease, the sense of anxiety. Was it, what is it to live under occupation? What is it to live in a zone of conflict? Now, at one point, the paintball machine was uh, hijacked, and it was shot repeatedly. He couldn't sleep. He had to leave the room. And then at another point, some other group commandeered the actual paintball machine, so it aimed away from him. So suddenly, this whole debate was being played out literally live on the Internet. Dog or Iraqi, and again, I'm still talking about artistic practices, which may for some of you be, you know, I, I don't know, challenging or not, uh, but they won't necessarily fit into your idea of what contemporary art or modern art is about. It's not about sculpture, it's not about painting, it's not about installation, it's not about video. It's about process and it's about practice. The end object in and of itself seems to be more about debate and interaction than anything else. In 2008, Wafa decided to have this online vote. You could vote for either Wafa Bilal or this cute little dog to be waterboarded. Um, Wafa lost. Now, I think if he'd chosen a less cute dog, like a Rottweiler or an American Pitbull, he might just have won. But I think it was a foregone conclusion. He was, he was going to lose this vote. And he was waterboarded. Now, it's quite graphic, this video. You can Google it. I find it 
I can watch it. There's times I can't watch it. There's times I can watch it. Usually I can't watch it. He gets waterboarded, uh, which is an extremely vile form of torture, which is being condoned by the American and British governments. Um, it takes place in so-called black sites. It now seems to be the go-to form of torture for anyone interrogating potential suspects of terrorism. For the artist to put himself in the position of being waterboarded, despite the fact he only lasts about, literally, he lasts about 15 seconds, and he's gagging and he's puking and he's, he's in a state. And you know what? My heart goes out to him because there but, for the grace of God, could be any one of us. But for him to put himself in that position again is re-engaging, not just with the sense of the politics of torture post-Iraq, post-September 11, but what is it to be a subject in these times? What is it to be a modern individual who can at any one point, and I don't know how many of you have read, how many of you have read the Patriot Act? Okay, that's the scariest document I've ever read. The second scariest document I read was the British government's terrorism bill of 2008. Both, both bills, both acts allow governments to take you from a room, like this room perhaps, and then subject you to not only non-representation, but to interrogation for a period of, respectively, in America, 72 days, in Britain, currently, 48 days. You cannot claim habeas corpus. This is the divine right, the beginning of the legal system in this country. You cannot bring the person who has claimed you have done wrong to a room to state what it is you have done wrong. This is the denial of habeas corpus. Now, this suspension of rights would seem to me to be indicative of our time. Not the exception, but the exemplification of a world in which it is deemed acceptable to rendition, render, and indeed kill individuals without any recourse to the law. And again, for Wafa to put himself in that position opens up a lot of debates that interest me personally. Let's talk a little bit more about this. The suspension of law, I think, is absolutely key to art, contemporary art practices today, and how they engage with the political. The notion of the camp, I think, again, is absolutely key. The camp used to be the exception to modernity. Increasingly, I would argue, it is the exemplification. It is modernity writ large. Bagram, Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo. Just thinking about the camp, thinking about artists, how artists engage with that. This is Coco Fusco. Coco Fusco worked with Team Delta, Team Delta are some of the people that train the soldiers in these camps to interrogate people. You can buy their services for the princely sum of $22,000 an hour. You can go and work with Team Delta. They will teach you enhanced interrogation techniques. Not only will they teach you enhanced interrogation techniques, they will teach you how to withstand them. So these guys have got it covered. They've got the market covered from both sides. Coco Fusco, she trained with them. She then, with a group of volunteers reenacted scenes from enhanced interrogation techniques. Now again, this is about process. This is about practice. This is about opening up a discourse. This is about opening up a space of where we can potentially engage with the rights and wrongs of interrogation techniques. It is not saying interrogation is right or wrong. It's not taking a political standpoint. It is inviting you to engage with the politics of that. I think key for me was a Gambon, thinking to a Gambon 10 years ago, the publication of this book. Have, has anybody read this book? 
super short. Go buy it. 150 pages. I'm not saying it will change your life, but it will certainly help you understand what precisely is at stake today in modernity. Um, it's a very complex book. I'm not going to try to abbreviate it here, but very briefly, in both of these books, Agamben argues that the camp is not the exception. It is the exemplification. It is what he calls the rule of law today. Now, it's a very complex argument, and again, I don't want to necessarily get bogged down in it here, but I would ask you to consider the following, because there's a whole chapter in this book dedicated to camps, and I think increasingly artists engaging with the notion of the camp is an important element of the relationship between art and politics. Uh, camps, apparently transient, but now permanent. Uh, this camp, for example, in Greece, holds so-called illegal immigrants from North Africa. This camp, Le Jungle, the jungle, I think it's an interesting terminology, the very notion, the jungle. This is in Calais. Has anybody ever seen this camp? Has anybody went through Calais recently? I live in Kent, Folkestone. I can see Calais literally from our top floor. Um, we do journey back and forth there. And you can see these camps. This camp has been taken down. A new campus came into play. The very fact of these camps, again, their permanence, I think is an important issue to examine here. Nikolai Larsen, very interesting artist, The Promised Land. Again, thinking about art as a practice, he went, he lived for two years with these individuals, so-called illegal immigrants, economic, political migrants, whatever you want to call them. He gave them cameras, he gave them video cameras, he collected the material that they were producing and turned it into an extraordinary film which premiered in the last Folkestone Triennial. Now again, this kind of artist as quasi-ethnographer I think is interesting, this kind of reinterpretation of an anthropological approach which has been largely discredited over the last 30 to 40 years. It's interesting that it's re-emerging in certain artists and their engagement with politics. also interested in the camp, just extend the whole notion of the camp. Occupy camps. Sukkoti Square, St. Paul's. This notion of the camp has become ubiquitous. And I'm quite interested in this kind of like agit-propagandistic placard holding that happens around these camps and how artists have re-engaged with this. I know that certain artists have set in on protests, but I'm much more interested in the way in which artists adopt and adapt the visual nomenclature. And this is Bob and Roberta Smith, which some of you might know is actually not two people, it's one artist, Patrick Brill. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me telling you that. But I'm quite taken by the way in which Patrick actually takes the sort of visual element of protest. But again, re-engages it, doesn't try to sell you a message as such. Very tongue-in-cheek. There doesn't seem to be any end point to this. There doesn't seem to be any instruction or didacticism. And again, I think this is important when we consider this notion of the re-emergence or re-engagement of art with politics. One of the quotes that helped me a lot was this. Stephen Duncombe and Steve Lambert. I'd strongly suggest checking these guys out. They're quite interesting. Uh, What artistic activist aims have in common is a fate that awareness can change the world without any specific follow-through. I think if you're looking for a definition of the current relationship of art to activism, that is it. You can raise the issues without any follow-through. And I think this is very important, folks. These artists and these artworks should not be held to account by whether or not they affect political change. That is not the issue here. I think they should be held to account by the extent to which they re-engage us with the expanded sphere of the political itself and contest the political imagination. 
Again, Camps, just thinking through neoliberalism, the complete and utter handover of our legal and security systems to private companies. Again, a lot of artists working through these issues. And for those of you who are interested, um, and I can post this PDF at a later date, uh, I've worked with this a lot. And I found it coming back again and again and again when I was thinking about this book. Artists exemplifying states of exception. This is Regina Galindo Jose, uh, America's Family Prison. <clears throat> um, I'm sure you guys know this, but the American legal system is effectively a privatized system. It is there for profit. People behaving in an illegal manner, people being incarcerated, has profit. This is the great American way. This is how they do it. Uh, at one point, and still to this day, uh, if you were incarcerated as an illegal immigrant into America, your children would be taken with you and incarcerated in prison, too. Now, this goes against every kind of so-called human right. And again, human rights are part of the problem here, too. But uh, Jose spent, uh, I think, 48 hours in this small little prison thing. You could go. You could see her. And it was actually quite touching. Um, seeing a woman incarcerated with her child, the child doesn't know what's going on, despite the fact, you know, I think her baby was about two and a half. And it just really brings home to you what actually does happen uh, in, in these circumstances, what the actual human cost is. Quite interested in this work here by Tanya Bergera. And sorry, is there a... Yeah. Tanya Bergera, and again, just thinking through, if we're looking at Jose, she's reenacting. She can leave after 48 hours. I don't think that's a problem, but she can leave after 48 hours. I think what's interesting with this work is this is an ongoing project. It's based in Queens in New York, which is one of the most multicultural parts of New York. Uh, it's got a high immigrant population. The immigrant, or the figure of the immigrant, has been increasingly delegitimized as uh, subjectivity, specifically in America, North America, and indeed Europe. Tony Bergara set up the Immigrant Movement International, which is basically a political lobbying group which uses the labor force of so-called immigrants to affect political change. Now, again, this is about the formal context of contemporary art. This is about artists co-opting communities into practice. And again, I think this is important to consider when we look at the changing relationship between art practices and the political sphere. Santiago Sierra is somebody that comes in for a lot of criticism. Are you guys familiar with his work? Hands up. Okay, this guy's like the whipping boy of kind of ethically correct uh, criticism. Tanya, I think this, this is very worthy, perhaps a tad dull. You know, there's a lot of workshops, and I've sat in on some of the workshops, and people talk about the problems, and that can get quite worrying. And I don't mean to sound conceited, or I'm not interested, but you know what? It can go on. However, there's another approach which I think is equally interesting. And that's to behave in the single most immoral and unethical fashion possible in order to draw attention to the ethics of so-called illegal immigration and how they're dealt with, how individuals are dealt with. This was a work put together for Kunstwerk in Berlin where so-called illegal immigrant workers were paid $40 a day to sit in cardboard boxes for eight hours. This payment in and of itself was made after the event. You are not allowed to pay illegal immigrant workers any wage. They get, I think it's $120 from the German government each month for the subsistence. Now look, again, I can spend the rest of the conversation on this one work. I mean, I put the question to you. 
What is more unethical? The fact that these individuals cannot work, are subject to quite stringent laws, or the fact that Santiago Sierra apparently exploits their labor by making them sit still in a box for eight hours. This is a work, uh, precarious labor. The whole notion of precarity has become a big issue, and I'm sure you guys are familiar with this. The notion that subsistence wage is actually now increasing poverty on a level that we've never seen before. Santiago Sierra worked with workers that were being paid so-called minimum wage. And what did he do? Uh, he effectively buried them. Now, needless to say, nobody died. They had a uh, air. But I think it's extraordinary, this work in and of itself. It's a performative work. I didn't see it. The only knowledge I have of it is the images. I brought it here to you tonight. You now have seen the images. Uh, I don't know what effect that will have. I can't gauge that. But effectively, the sense that somehow the invisibility of these workers being replicated in what is effectively a performance, I think is interesting. Um, a number of works that I had quite a problem with. Doris uh, Alcedo's Shibboleth. Who saw this work? Uh, also known as Doris's Crack. Um, huge crack right down the middle of Tate Modern. Uh, Doris has spoken about this, and I engaged with it in the work, and I found it extremely problematic, actually, because it seems to me that the more you institutionalize these issues, the more you end up with spectacle. And I think that's very problematic. Spectacle inevitably decontextualizes and elides problems. I was also very taken by this, Rashlav Balka, and I included both of these in the book, but in retrospect, and there's another book to be written, I don't think I would include them again without being very <coughs> critical of these works. Did anyone see this work? <coughs> this is a huge tank, um, sorry, a huge transport, sort of uh, like a container. Uh, it was meant, and if you read the blurb next to the Tate, to kind of recall or allude to illegal migration, transportation of migrants, the Holocaust, I mean, all the big ones. Um, but effectively, again, it just seemed lost, despite the fact this was enormous. This is the biggest work they've ever shown at Tate. It just seemed to have no purchase in these issues. It was pure spectacle. And again, I think we, and by we I mean us, should engage with how artists increasingly use issues around globalization, citizenship, migration, uh, geopolitics, biopolitics, and present it in a very glib way, actually, in a way that's actually, I think, even more problematic than not engaging with it, because it seems as if they're engaging. But in fact, I think they're offering alibis for engaging. Another work by Santiago Sierra, he put out an ad inviting 20 workers to sit in a ship's hold for a period of two weeks doing nothing. Uh, it was oversubscribed. 200 people turned up on the first day, 400 on the second. It was finally closed down by the Spanish police because of health and safety issues. Again, we might want to ask ourselves, I mean, these guys cannot work. They have not got papers. Santiago Sierra is giving them money to work. That work, in and of itself, is a kind of Bartleby-esque work. They're not doing anything. Now, again, I think this is a comment, and I think what Sierra does is pushes precisely at the moral and ethical systems that we use to kind of condemn or support political decision-making. Uh, this was a difficult one. Mike Parr. Uh, any Australians? No Australians? You're always guaranteed at least one, oh, one Australian. <laughs> Don't be shy. It's a good place. <laughs> Uh, you will be more familiar than most. Uh, the Australian government's uh, current laws 
Uh, and in fact, the next law they're going to pass in the Australian Parliament is some of the most draconian anti-immigration laws in the world today. Uh, this surprises me on a number of levels. Uh, Mike Parr, in order to draw attention to this, because there's been a number of instances in Australian prisons of men and indeed women sewing their lips together with thread that they make themselves and self-mutilation. <laughs> a number of people would have been in these detention centres for three to five years. I mean, it is a ridiculously long time to be hovering in limbo. Uh, Mike Parr has himself uh, cut open under a doctor's supervision. These performances last 30, sometimes 40 hours. <coughs> They're tough, definitely tough, even graphic. And unfortunately, because you're just seeing one image, it looks a lot more graphic than what it is. Uh, to see the performance, it unfolds over time. You have more time to prepare yourself for somebody getting their face cut open. Um, but again, here is an artist, I think, again, putting himself on the line. I don't, I don't think this is a, a worthy gesture on his behalf. I think he's genuinely concerned about the fact that people are simply not even making this discussion available. It's been delegitimized as a political topic in Australia. Christoph Slingerseif, if you do anything after this lecture today, go look at everything this man has ever made. Unfortunately, he died prematurely, but I think he was... You know, he, he's the inheritor of Brecht in many ways, and he does it in a very different way, but the work is quite brilliant. This work, Please Love Austria, 2000. What did he do? He set up a number of containers in the middle of Vienna. He got a live feed onto the internet, web-free TV. He put 10 so-called illegal immigrants into this space and recorded them 24-7. This went onto the internet, and at the end of each day, you, the public, could get to vote for one of those illegal immigrants to leave. And if they did leave, they were deported. They had to leave Austria. The winner got to marry an Austrian and stay in Austria. I don't know which is worse. Any Austrians here? <laughs> Okay, that sounds, you know, look, this guy's, this is real life, as real as it gets. These are people who are either deported or stay. I mean, something happens, there's a consequence to this work. It's not just about an abstract theoretical position that he takes on this. The work was finally shut down by left-wing anarchists who just didn't quite get what he was about in this respect. Effectively, he was drawing attention to the mediatization, how the media contrive, how the media collude with governments to not only legitimize and delegitimize the figure of the immigrant, but also to legitimize and delegitimize debate about immigration. Lawrence Abu Hamdan. Paul, how am I doing on time? Five minutes. Five minutes. Um, Lawrence Abu Hamdan. We often think of the illegal immigrant as a body that can be subjected to violence. Increasingly, the British government found a new way of uh, discriminating, and that's to do with your voice. So, for example, if you come to Britain seeking political or economic asylum and you refuse to tell them where you're from or you lie about where you're from, which is common, they can test your voice to determine where you're from. The technology doesn't work. Does that mean they don't use it? Of course not. What Lawrence Abohandan does, and I think quite brilliantly, is explores precisely the problematic of the subject being reduced to the very essence of their self, the voice. You can now be deported on the strength of your accent alone. 
One of the things Lawrence done was he raised a petition. And again, I don't look at many artists that actively engage with the political sphere, but he did, sorry, actively engage with political government policy on the strength of, um, let me rephrase that, government policy making. I don't engage with many artists that deal with government policy making. Lawrence is one of the few I do. Lawrence tried to have the law changed. He raised a petition. It came to nothing. But I think it's interesting that he really got down and dirty with this, collected names, brought it to Parliament. Actually, I think he brought it to number 10 Downing Street and gave it over, not to David Cameron, but to one of his flunkies. Needless to say, the law hasn't changed. This will now be uh, used across Britain to determine whether or not you have a right to remain. This is one of my all-time favorite works. Um, I love this guy. This is Andy Bichelbaum. Are you guys familiar with Andy? Go and look at everything these guys do. I mean, it's really quite brilliant. And again, just thinking about artists directly being activists, thinking about Lawrence getting really engaged. Andy Bichelbaum turned up in the BBC World News green room and announced he was from Dow Chemicals. And he had an important announcement to make. BBC goes into overload and says, great, Dow Chemicals, what are you going to say? Dow Chemical, you may know, was responsible for or bought Union Carbide. Union Carbide were responsible for Bhopal. Bhopal was an explosion in Bhopal in India, which killed upwards of 20,000 people, leaving 120,000 people disfigured. Its legacy is extraordinarily insidious. No one has ever been compensated for that, despite the fact that Union Carbide were, and indeed are, eligible, uh, um, broke the law. What does Andy do? <clears throat> he looks quite convincing there, apart from the mad staring eyes, which in, in real life he has too. Uh, he goes and says that Union Carbide, sorry, the parent company, Dow Chemicals, will accept all liability for Bhopal, and they will pay back and compensate everyone affected by it. This hits the news. It's big. I mean, CNN, everything stops for this announcement. In the space, I think it was 36 seconds, $2 billion were wiped off Dow Chemical. Gone. Literally gone. Now, I think that's extraordinary when you think about it. Obviously, there's no such thing as caring capitalism. It doesn't pay. It doesn't pay to care. But I love the fact that this guy could prank his way into the BBC, become an imposter, and wipe $2 billion off one of the world's biggest companies. Like, that gives you hope. But again, these guys position themselves as artists and performers. They're not saying they're political activists, they're artists and performers. But again, how could you possibly go any more global than that? Like literally getting that one-off opportunity. The other one to look for is the Niger Delta hoax. Have a check on that too. They do something very similar. Again, I had a look at this. And you know what? I'm not saying there was no follow-through with this work. There was. $2 billion follow-through. But a lot of art involved with so-called activism is not simply about this follow-through or a sense that you can somehow equate or somehow determine whether it was good or bad. Did it make political change? Did it not? Did it have an effect? I don't think it's about that. I think it's about modes of engagement and expanding engagement with the political sphere. If the political sphere is about determining what is political, we need to redetermine what is political. We need to expand upon the political imagination. And I think when good, interesting contemporary artists do this, they do expand upon the political imagination. They do re-engage us with the political issues of our time. 
want to finish up, Ai Weiwei, again, thinking about the artist as activist. Ai Weiwei is probably the best known artist activist in the world today. The man, I don't know what to say about him. I don't know whether we're looking at somebody that's truly extraordinary. And I think he's very compromised by the institutions he works with. I think he's very compromised by the galleries he works with. But going up against the Chinese government is a tough thing to do. <clears throat> and he does it again and again and again. <clears throat> Sometimes at his own safety. This is a wonderful work called Remembering. Following an earthquake in the Sichuan province, which killed 60,000 people, I think 32,000 of which were children who died in school classrooms that were essentially not fit for purpose, he went and bought, I think it was a 1,200 or 1,400 school bags, like the school bags the children would wear. And he put this up in Munich, and these words spell out, and you have to take my word for this, these words were taken from the murder of a child who had died. The child was seven years old. And this sentence is very simple. It's, she lived for seven happy years in this world. Now again, I personally think, not only is this quite moving, but it's a perfect example of an artist engaging with the political in this issue, instance, issues around censorship, issues around a kind of one-party political state, and doing it through the aesthetic, doing it through the visual, doing it through the public, doing it through the civil, re-engaging you with the potential to think about that as a political issue. Very basic level as well, artists now today, knowledge seems to determine in the age of Facebook and social media who we are and who we will be. A lot of artists now re-engaging with how we understand knowledge, literally and metaphorically. Uh, artist collectives such as Bruno de Tue, working on determining who precisely rules the world. These are immensely complex graphics. Um, they are, if you fold them out, and I think it's 14 in total, they would cover this entire room. But they do plot and map an alternative world government to the one that we understand to be the current national world government. Likewise, I would strongly suggest looking at this man, Mark Lombardi. Strange tales about this guy, but effectively it is argued that he... Well, actually, I won't go into it. You guys check him out. Uh, suffice to say, after September 11th, this guy was plotting out for many, many years, 20 years, the relationship between the Bin Laden family and George W. Bush, the American government, and European heads of state. Uh, he plotted these out meticulously. <coughs> after September 11th, the FBI went and confiscated a lot of his material to figure out precisely what the hell was going on. They were eventually given back to him. He... Very suspicious circumstances commit suicide, um, I think seven years ago. And again, very problematic character, very problematic story, but do go and check him out. Again, this kind of engagement with the politics of knowledge itself. Ashley Hunt, again, engaging with how do we present this knowledge, how are we to understand, how are we to engage with this knowledge. And Hito Sterl, Hito has become something of a superstar in relation to art and politics. But there's one thing that I should finish on and make clear to you, and that's the following. And I'll just tell you a little bit about this work. She had a friend called Andrea who joined the KPP, the Kurdistan uh, Freedom Party. She was shot, sorry, she was tortured and shot by the Turkish government forces in a small little area of north, sorry, south Turkey, north Kurdistan. Hito went to the site. She found little bullets. Perhaps one of these bullets was used to kill her friend. She then traced where this bullet had came from. And she traced it back to the manufacturer. She traced the manufacturer back to a series of government-supported organizations, one of which 
was the Koch Foundation, KOC. The Koch Foundation were supporting the Istanbul Biennial, and as part of supporting the Istanbul Biennial, they were supporting this series of talks that Hito Sterl was giving. So she, she traced back something quite extraordinary. The way in which, for example, and it doesn't, it's not coincidental, when she puts it all together, it's very, very convincing. The art world is as much a part of this problematic as it is a solution. The way in which increasingly states are being cleansed by culture or culture is being used as a tourist attraction, the way in which artists increasingly engage with emerging markets, biennials, which are about opening up markets, you know, the globalists' wet dream, open up more markets, the way in which artists have became part of a kind of neoliberal accumulation of wealth, this needs to be engaged with. But putting that to one side, and that will come, we also need to engage with artists, as I hope I have done tonight, and I hope I have done in the book, that really do re-engage us with the notion of the political. And re-engage us not only with the notion of the political, but how the political determines what is political and what is not. And in that moment, they bring into play voices that have been delegitimized, but equally they bring into play subjects, political subjects, that have been delegitimized. So, I think that's for me. Um, Thank you, and, and do ask questions later. Thank you, Anthony. Perhaps I can just quickly throw this then open to questions from the floor. Could you please put your hand up if you've got a question? We'll get a microphone to you as quickly as possible. Introduce yourself, just for the record, and um, away we go. So who would like to start? Questions? They can be criticisms. At the back, lovely. Hi, thank you. Hi, I'm Joe. I study at Goldsmiths. And Joe, I think you might have to turn that on. I think it's on. Yes, yeah, so go ahead. Okay? Hi, um, I went to the Folkestone Triennale this yes. um, weekend, mm-hmm. uh, and I just wanted to ask a question. I didn't know you you were from Folkestone. Not from. Um, I ended up there. You live in Folkestone. Um, what, how does it feel like being there like at the moment and are there any artists there that are engaging with the um, different the old community and the new community uh, how does it feel to be there um, briefly we, we actually left London after I was living in London for 25 years left London to move to Folkestone to get away from the art world and on the very day we arrived the Folkestone Triennial opened and we had everyone knocking on our door because we were right beside the station wanting to stay. Uh, so it was more of same. The triennial, I'm not going to defend or support the triennial, but this current triennial, which was curated by Lewis Biggs, I think has been one of the most successful engagements with a social fabric. He very much set out, Joe, to kind of utilize artists to engage with the very fabric of the city itself, the town itself. And if you know the town, you'll know it's kind of like most seaside towns. It's got a very wealthy part, and it's got a kind of very impoverished part. And I think he spent a lot of time making sure that that kind of elided part of the town was brought to the fore. Did you follow the tour of the Triennial, Joe? 
I mean, parts of that, and you may not know it when you're passing by, but places like Bradstone Road and that, you know, they're, they're real areas of social deprivation. And he made sure there were artworks there. And I think that that was very important to engage the local community. And I think he did it very successfully. I think if you don't get the local community to involve or invest in the process of, for example, a triennial about public art, then there's no point. Just, just make objects and stick them in a room or you know, stick them on a kind of um, pedestal somewhere. So if you're asking me, do I think it was a success? Yes. Uh, I had some very favorite works there. I think Jill Bradley's work was fantastic. Uh, Something and Son's work was really good. Did you see the park Muff made called Pears Park? Huge slide. 100-foot slide. Yeah? I think this was the most successful work. For those of you who don't know, folks, in Payers Park uh, was just a kind of, it's where you went to score drugs, or indeed, uh, if you were looking for prostitutes. Um, Muff went, Muff are uh, an organization from Holland, they went in and totally converted the park, because one of the problems with the park was the local Roma community and a lot of Kosovans who were, you know, um, asylum seekers, they had nowhere to actually go. They put this park together and suddenly there were a lot of people playing in that park and a lot of the local community were coming together. If you want a really good example of artists engaging with that sort of politics of deprivation or indeed the politics of immigration, I think that's a good work to look at, Joe. Another question. Yes. Thank you. Hi, I'm Mira. I study here sociology here at LSE. Um, I wanted to come back to your dis- or yeah, comparison or distinction between uh, political art and art in politics. So did I understand it right that um, political arts is always or more or less like an opinion and ex- explicit um, movement towards yes or no or against or for something and the arts of politics that you were dealing with were more like a comment and uh, yeah, a push for engaging with like the political sphere in general like a bit more neutral Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that right? Because I, mean, I, w- I had the feeling that the, the, um, the examples that you were showing, for example, the waterboarding, that's far more than a comment. It takes mm-hmm. a side. It's, it's not saying, yeah, I'm just open up the political discussion here. I'm not saying, because it is saying stop waterboarding and stop, don't do it. It might be really subjective because that's just how... Yeah, I don't know. I have more frames in my head mm. that this is when I see the pictures, it comes into my mind, okay, waterboarding is bad. But I think that might be for most of the people. So I don't really understand like the, this line between political art and art and politics okay. because I think they do state something. It's more implicit, mm. and sometimes it may, might be neutral, but most of the time it's saying, okay, you see this guy is freaking out when it gets paintballs, so stop shooting, you know, and... Um, waterboarding doesn't look so nice, so stop waterboarding and stuff like that. So I, okay. I don't you. see it as neutral as you see. <laughs> okay, uh, that's a fair question, Mara. Um, so let's just examine that. Uh, political art, I did suggest, makes a standpoint. I think that standpoint is often relatively problematic. Stop Bush, stop war. Yeah, great. You know, let's stop Bush, let's stop war, let's live in peace and harmony. Um, I think that's a political statement that merely reinscribes the paradigms and parameters of contemporary political discourse. And that contemporary political discourse is problematic. So we need to change the terms of the debate. And it's interesting you should talk about Wafa Bilal and this notion of Wafa Bilal saying that waterboarding is bad. At no point does he say it's bad. And I tell you what's quite interesting. Read the comments left 
on the website for that video. There's a lot of people saying he deserves it. I won't tell you what they're saying. A lot of it's quite brutal. But basically, because he's Iraqi, he deserves it. There's very few comments on that website, and this is interesting, that are kind of saying waterboarding is bad. When you look at the transcript for domestic tension, 90% of the comments are, let's get the Iraqi. Now, what I'm suggesting there is that Wafa has done is opened up the terms of the debate. He's made them obvious. He's not taking sides, and in not taking sides, he allows us to engage with the terms of the debate outside, perhaps, hopefully, the terms of the debate that we've been told to engage with or the accepted terms of debate. And I think this neutral position, this position in and of itself, creates a much more nuanced, much more effective way of opening up sites of engagement as opposed to closing them down. So I don't know whether that clarifies. And don't get me wrong, these are live issues for me. These are issues I'm still working through. These are issues I still need to engage with. But I think that's more or less where I am at the moment. Okay, I've got a couple more questions here. Gentleman, you might jump in first. Um, hi. Hello, my name is William. I work for the Cultural Institute at King's College London. Um, and thanks for your talk. It's really, it was brilliant. Um, you said you weren't, you weren't decided at one point on placing political art within the context of an institution, about how that can turn mm. it into spectacle. Um, do you have any conclusions about that or any examples of inspiring institutions which don't do that and it enhances the work? Sorry, I didn't catch your name. William. William, thank you. Um, <clears throat> This is very problematic, William. The institutions of art today seem to be increasingly conservative, despite the fact that they may present a political standpoint. Uh, I think they increasingly demand a certain bums on seats, and this is determined by funding, this is determined by you know, government restrictions and so forth. Uh, are there institutions working today that have been more avant-garde? Uh, there's a couple. It's kind of, I tell you what was very interesting for me. I showed you a work by Santiago Sierra, where he had people living in boxes for eight hours a day. Uh, he actually presented two ideas to Kunstwerk in Berlin. And Kunstwerk, for those of you who don't know, is one of the more, you know, they're quite radical. They put on some really good shows, and they really engage with issues. The work that they wouldn't let him do, and I think this is indicative, William, is the following. He wanted to line up the entire staff of Kunstwerk in order of how much they were paid. (laughs) And they wouldn't let them do this. Here's one of the more radical institutions. They wouldn't let them do this. Because you can guarantee that that line would be segregated along racial lines. Very problematic. Certainly along a kind of like, you'd have, you know, workers obviously at the bottom and you'd have the director at the top. But they wouldn't let them visualize the institutional context of that. And I think if you're really engaging with art and politics today, getting institutions to engage with the politics of their own restrictions and their own paradigms of working with artists would be very interesting too. And again, that's something else that I I, I need to work on a little bit more, William. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is George. I study political theory here at LSE. Mm -hmm. You're talking about politics uh, as being something that we need to redefine the borders, like displacing the borders. And I was thinking about applying that with art, and in particular, most of your pieces, or most of the works that you were showing of art were, you were saying, like, uh, significant events, the wars and stuff, making this claim that this is the defining political aspect of our generation. But I was thinking, like, for me, 
the feeling and got at the end was 1984 alienation from everyone and this seems to be the defining political event of our generation and perhaps redefining art and politics as not as something occurring in these significant events but rather like I, I, I don't want to use this word but I can't think of any other but the banality of everyday life mm. and this in and of itself seems to be the most political aspect of our generation and mm. reconsidering art not as something um, an individual agent intentionally goes out to create but as you're talking towards the end the uh, I guess, collusion and connection of governments and corporations, the idea of public space. I mean, I'm new to London, but the cameras are crazy. But that seems to be art to me. It's not what we think of healthy art, but this seems to be perhaps the shift or more of a dominant um, arrangement now of art and politics is what we don't realize the subtle forces. Absolutely, George. I would not disagree with you one bit. Uh, two things to address here. One, the politicization and privatization of public space, even in my time. Uh, I arrived in London, 89. I've seen such dramatic changes in land that was once common land, thoroughfares, the Thames. Try walk the length of the Thames. You used to be able to do it. You cannot do it now. Uh, private buildings going up, surveillance. That's certainly something we need to engage with. But you touched upon something, I think, which is even more important, the politicization of life itself. And this, again, I find Giorgio Gambon very interesting here. He makes a distinction between bios and zoe. Zoe being life as we live it, bios being a political life. And he engages with how our lives, quite literally, the inner core of every desire, every physical moment, every single thought can be, indeed is, surveilled and can be controlled and can be privatized. And Facebook is probably the most indicative example of the privatization materialization and profitability to be had in exploiting our innermost desires, ones we don't even know we have yet, but people are certainly defining them. Hi, my name's Tom. Hi, Tom. Karen, we can hear you. Um, Can you guys hear him at the back? He's been recorded. I'm a government student at LSE Mm -hmm. as well. I just have one question, which is, um, it seems to me that all of the artists that you've praised tonight according to yourself, have in common um, a desire to transgress the um, attempts of the political artists that you criticise to re-engage simply the terms of contemporary debate um, and to extend debate beyond existing structures of discourse. Um, But they also seem to me to have in common an implicit um, attempt to justify debate itself. So my question is, what role, if any, do you think art ought to play in questioning the value of debate and deliberative democracy and public discourse itself? Mm. Good question, Tom. Um, What role should art have in questioning the role of debate? Ideally, it would have a role. Um, But perhaps if we look at debate, I, I always think of debate as, you know, consensus and dissensus. I see consensus as uh, a move presently within which we're all living. I mean, consensual politics. Uh, dissensual politics increasingly delegitimized, protest delegitimized. Uh, can art re-engage the terms within which we're having these debates and the role of debate within a political context? I personally think it can. I think it can visualize or engage with a political imagination and think about politics in a way that politics can think about. I think it can re-imagine 
the political imagination. Politics is increasingly closing down through debate, whether it's for or against the terms of debate. I think art increasingly opens up those terms of debate. Does every artist do it? No. And there are certain artists here I didn't show today that I think perhaps have a more valid engagement with the notion of debate. There are artists that hold debates precisely to point out perhaps the irrelevance of them or the relevance. So it is part of it, but it's something that, again, I, I, I need to re-engage with. That probably didn't answer your question, did it? Or did it? No. No, another question next to you, and then at the very back. Go ahead. All right. Um, hello, my name is Darko. I'm studying also at Goldsmiths Art and Pop Politics, actually. Yes. And um, I'm from Berlin or originally, and my, my question would be now, um, we were talking about a lot about opening of engagement and discussion, uh, this, this discussions um, that were or, or, or originally um, coming from artists, but at this point I would like to at least ex express an attempt of closing it down. Mm. But the deliberately narrowing it down in terms of um, responsibility and also moral or contextual moral that certain art artists need to um, or certain pra practices actually I think entail. So my question now would be coming back to San 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 Antiago Sierra, and more concretely, um, and this is my question for you now. If you if you're familiar with the work of Belgium artist Renzo Martens, of course, yes, I've written about Renzo many times. And um, for, for those who don't know Renzo Martens, I will very briefly just unfold his work, which is got one more question. We've got five minutes, so sure. ask a question. All right, I'll just I'll just make it really what was briefly. The, what was the question? Are artists have a moral responsibility. Yeah, yeah and also what in if they. If, do they have? And okay. yeah, what do you think about Renzo Martin's work? Thank you, Darko. Thank you. Um, briefly, for those of you who don't know Renzo's work, he, he again is like you know the whipping boy of a kind of like ethical criticism. Uh, he, two, two works, but I'll just mention one work. He traveled to the Democratic Republic of Congo, bringing with him a big neon sign. The neon sign says "Enjoy Poverty." He got the locals to put together like an engine system where they would work to actually sort of make sure that this sign is displayed over a period of time. Uh, he also done some other things which people have found morally reprehensible. I, Darko, do not find the work morally reprehensible. I don't think we should call on artists to be moral or ethical. I don't think that's part of the remit. Why should we? Do we ask our politicians? Do we ask our writers? Do we ask our government officials? Do we ask our bankers? Do we ask our teachers? Who else do we ask? to be morally and ethically responsible. And indeed, even in the asking, are they? I think personally, take for example Santiago Sierra, whom we've all seen. It's difficult to judge Renzo unless you've seen the work. I think it is a more ethical stance to point out the unethical and immoral legislation that defines the lives of immigrants, even if you use something that is immoral and unethical. This is the classic Swiftian dilemma. Um, I'm sure you're all familiar with Swift's um, modest proposal. a modest proposal, in which he suggests that the answer to the English problem with the Irish is that they should eat the firstborn of every Irish family. Great Swiftian satirical gesture. He opens up something so tremendously horrible, unethical, immoral, to point out the unethical, immoral way in which the English were treating the Irish at the time. Some people picked up Swift's little book and believed it. Believed it as a potential to solve the Irish problem in 1734. 
Now, what Renzo posits is an immodest proposal, as does Santiago Sierra, that the treatment of these individuals, regardless of the ethics involved in the artist's treatment of them, is far less problematic than the way they're being treated presently. And in drawing attention to that, that is almost a moral stance. So that, that's my view for what it's worth. And again, Darko, if you check out... I've written a lot about Renzo. I've written a lot about Arta Zimazewski, again, somebody who comes into a lot of criticism, Santiago Sierra, and how these artists re-engage the notion of the ethical. Huge problem with the word ethical, and perhaps I should have spoke a little bit more about this. The form of ethics within which we are currently living is the manifestation of a neoliberal ethos. We live in an ethical system presently, again, which closes down debate. We live in an ethical system presently that tries to put itself across as the moral solution. Far from it. I think it's actually containing debate and discussion. Well, before I close down the debate, let me try and get the two last questions in. We've got about two and a half minutes, so I'm going to take both of them and then give you the last word. So over to you. Try Okay. Hi, uh, hello, my name is Mariam. I'm just studying also at uh, Goldsmiths and Art and Politics. I just wrote a dissertation also about complacencies of political Could you art. slow down? I'm terribly sorry. Cool. I can't hear you. <laughs> I just wrote a dissertation about complacency of political art and actually mentioned a lot of the artists that you used. So, but I grouped them in completely different ways. So I think you defend some of the artists that I would say are just, you know, like Bifal or Agnes, or Ivey, I would say Agnes Deans as well. I would say that they are just, you know, really patronizing and guilt-tripping. And basically, you say that they're debating. I think we're so past debate. You know, that's such a liberal stance to say we need more debate. I think we should be looking at more like, you know, yeah, Pane Bruguera, Santiago Sierra, and, and Hans Akia, something like that. That's a lot more hopeful, I would say, and a lot more encouraging, and actually, um, and Santiago Sierra being actually the hopeful one, I'd say. Um, that actually offers solutions. So I think, you know, the debate, we're past that. We need to think about solutions. Don't you think that? Before you respond, we've got one last. <coughs> give you the last word Thank from you. the floor, um, please. My name's uh, Michael. Uh, the only thing, what I'd like to ask is about the context of some of this art. You've suggested that um, it's not, some of it is not for or against any particular type of thing like torture, but that you're just asking the audience to engage with it. I'd like to put it to you, that, or as a, as a question, that that's not really the case, just by merely showing it, is, is in asking people to be against it. So, for example, if a work of art was just showing the bombing of Dresden, and photograph upon photograph of the bombing of Dresden, you might walk away saying how bad Britain was in World War II, without the context of what Germany had done in advance, uh, the Blitz and, and everything else it had done. So I'm asking, uh, I'll just put it to you, that, that it is really quite, not just political, it's not just for or against, it's asking the person to come out with a particular view potentially against torture and all the rest of it. Okay. You, do, you do have a book in which you've answered some of these questions. <laughs> no, no, but briefly, briefly. So we've got about 30 seconds before we get cut on the recording. Artists and solutions. To return to the penultimate question, I do not want artists to come up with solutions. Have you ever tried to get an artist to come up with a solution? They're not very good at it. I wouldn't even have an artist hang a shelf. I mean, <laughs> effectively, I don't think that's their role. And I don't think solutions... Again, this notion that somehow there's a solution, I think, is part of the problematic. Michael, briefly, I I don't disagree. Um, I think there's a danger that we fall into a repetition of spectacle, a repetition of violence that nulls and numbs us 
towards that. Now, do we use further shock tactics or do we get people to re-engage with the problematic of that? I think that is certainly more interesting. And as um, Professor Kelly just pointed out, there is a book. <laughs> okay. That, actually, is there a book signing? Yes, there is. There's a book Folks, signing. I'm happy to continue this. Do we have a book discount? More to the point. Well, that's, that's for higher authority than me to... Um, that, that's the neoliberal <laughs> consensus asserting its power. Uh, can, I just, can I just draw, draw this to a close by asking you to join me in thanking Anthony for his presentation tonight? Thank you.